0: This podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Don Dizon. If ever, a success story personified the American dream, it is that of Dr. Alfredo Quinones Hinojosa or as he's known to patients and friends, Dr. Q, and which I will be using in this podcast. Born in Mexicali, Mexico and the eldest of six children, a young Alfredo found his first job at the age of five, selling food to gas station customers to help support his family. And by the age of 18, he had earned a teaching license from a local college. In 1987, hoping to find a better means of helping his family Alfredo jumped a border fence into the United States at the age of 19. He spoke no English and had no money. After two years spent working manual labor, he made a decision. It wasn't enough. He would go back to school, learn English and build a better future for himself and those he loved. And by 1992, he had earned a scholarship to the University of California, Berkeley, where he majored in psychology. Eventually, he applied and was accepted to Harvard Medical School. After earning his medical degree, he began his career as a neurosurgeon in 2005 at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. And today, he is the William J. and Charles H. Mayo Endowed Professor, Chair of Neurologic Surgery, and the Dean of Research at Mayo Clinic. Not to mention, perhaps most importantly, a former Conquer Cancer Grant recipient whose research focuses on finding a cure for brain cancer. Dr. Q, thank you so much. And it is an honor for me to, to meet you. Thank you so much for making time to be with us today.
1: My dear Don, thank you for having me. And you mentioned my being a former recipient. I am so honored being a former recipient of Conquer Cancer, one of these amazing awards. I can only wish I can tell you that I have conquered Cancer But maybe what I have conquered is an ability to see the positive on the things that we have not accomplished yet and the many opportunities that we still have to hopefully one day conquer this disease.
0: Yeah, and I think we're gonna get into that too because so much of what your story brings is hope and optimism. So I definitely wanna make sure we cover that. But before we get started, where are you joining us from today?
1: I am in my office. I'm in my home office right now. I specifically stay here because that allows me to have a little bit of privacy, and I wanted to have a good time with you. You can see around uh, some of the selective things that I keep in my office from my house right here, my books in the back, some of my selective books. Some. Of, hey, look, at that's a real brain right there, a slice of a brain. Well, I was going to ask about that. It looked like an, an image. Yes. It is, but it is actually a fix. It's in resin. And then there, that is a picture of another brain right there. And you can see, and at one point, maybe even my puppies, Rocky and Apollo, may actually come into the room. Actually, wait, wait, wait a minute. There is Apollo sleepy right there. Look at him. He's right there, attentive. <laughs> you know, they like to keep an eye. and They like to be part of the interview sometimes. So you're going to get
0: the real me with me. That's where I am right now. <laughs> well, I have to close the door to my office because the same thing happens with my cats who seem to love the keyboard on my laptop and like to plop right down. <laughs> so we have a very much in common in that regard as well. So Dr. Q, to start, I read that part of the inspiration behind your career was your grandmother who was a curandera or village healer in Mexico. So looking back, how do you think that influenced your decision to pursue medicine? Because, I mean, there are these contradictions as well as parallels between healers and Western medicine. Looking back, how did that all influence you? I think it was very simple.
1: First of all, if you look at pictures of me nowadays and you look at pictures of my grandmother, as I get older, I begin to look more and more like my grandma. And I had an amazing relationship with both my grandmother from my paternal side and my grandfather. They were the yin and the yang. My grandfather was a dreamer. He would allow me to explore the world. And my grandmother was the one that would put the limits and then we put certain restrictions and would allow me to follow up more of a discipline. So I inherited both from both of them a certain way. But what I saw very early on, and I never forget. You know, maybe I was about four or five years old. I remember being at at my grandparents' home because I was not the firstborn and I was not the lastborn. I was somewhere in the middle of about 57 grandkids that my paternal grandparents had. My distinguishing feature is that I was the one that got into the most trouble all the time. So somewhere my grandfather, my grandmother took a liking on me. Proudly, my grandfather saw this spirit of a dreamer on him through me, and my grandmother saw the spirit of caring for people because she was an amazing, caring woman. And I remember being at the house and seeing people coming in and paid their respects. So she was the town healer and the midwife for those areas and delivered so many children and took care of so many people. And she has so many opportunities to go into the big city because we live in the middle of nowhere in rural communities that she never left. She kept providing service. So she was highly admired. And I saw the love and respect. But she was also a tough woman. And I think that myself, I have that part of me that a lot of people see the smiling face, the the jovial personality. But behind that, there's also a very firm and tenacious person who likes to make sure that everything is perfect for patient, for patient care, and who doesn't settle for anything else. But the best and perfection and what we do for patients because even in the middle of that perfection we still haven't been able to conquer the cancer and the disease and I think I
0: take that from my grandmother and she inspired me to
1: do those things Done.
0: when you look back on you know all those experiences from both sides actually your grandmother and your grandfather but the fact that she was also the person that people went to for help for medical help do you see that inspiration directly influencing your decision to go into neurosurgery as well as into research? Neurosurgery
1: and research came later in life. I would say that it influenced my decision to go into a field that was going to help people, medicine for sure, because I didn't know what I was going to pursue, to be honest with you. I knew that I was going to help people through medicine. I didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. And I think that that was a direct result of seeing my grandmother caring for people and giving her best to them. That was as simple. The neurosurgery and the research came later. I don't know if it was serendipity or chance, but it came later in life.
0: Well, I mean, I'd, you know, I think if there's anything, I have a similar experience with my grandparents as well, who are also very much into the natural healing. I think it's part of a very common immigrant experience, I think, that we all take. But it was also that curiosity of what nature can bring in terms of health. For me, it was also this trying to marry that with what Western medicine and the promise of how much more it can bring. And I I, I see, you know, even from your own experiences, sort of the stri- you're striving to sort of meld them as you care for people going forward.
1: I would say that, and I can tell that you relate to this, the beauty of what I do is that allows me to see the best of both types of medicine. For instance, that are a lot of natural remedies. Turns out that there are a lot of medicinal benefits. A lot of the herbs that my grandmother used, a lot of the knowledge that she had of physiology without uh, having modern equipment to monitor heart rate, blood pressure, and things like that. She was able to deliver a lot of babies, use a lot of herbs. We now are beginning to understand that those are a lot of the stuff that our natives use to heal people, had medicinal purposes. But also the spiritual side. The fact that you believe in uh, things for which sometimes we don't have control allows you to deal with poor outcomes. And I think that I would have to say that a spiritual side of healing, that the moment that you touch a patient, that you put your hand on a patient's shoulder, arm, you know, head, you are beginning to heal their soul. You may not find cures for their disease. But you are healing their soul that is many times as powerful to give them a good quality of life as the medications that you may give. In Western medicine, we emphasize so much medications, therapy, surgery, and stuff like that. And I would say that even in my own experience going through medical school at great places and residency and, and faculty, we really have not spent a significant amount of time in teaching our young students and our doctors That healing goes beyond the intervention, goes beyond the medicine. And I think that that's where our natives, you know, and our other civilizations really do emphasize. So that allows me to be, I think, in my own opinion, a much complete physician and coach for my patients and families.
0: In that same respect, I think applying that lens of spirituality into everything we do is also something that keeps one from... Burning out, you know, and it's such a topic of conversation today. How do you not burn out? How do you not get so lost in the distress of poor outcomes of cancer progression and end of life? And I hear what you are sort of saying is if you can apply your lens beyond just what you can do for physiological purposes, but for spiritual purposes as well, not only can you help your patients, but you can also help yourself. I love it. I love it. I spend, well, I'm going
1: to show you a picture right here. Look at this right here. The dialogue yes. right? We celebrate, we celebrate uh, not death is not the right, it's a transition in life. And I learned and I didn't realize then how much of that influence I had in my own life until maybe the last decade of my life, because you're right. I, just, I was starting to get burned out of, oh my gosh, I'm giving it all I got in the operating room and the laboratory and research and it, and perfecting the surgical techniques, and my patients are still surrendered to the disease, and and I have not made any discoveries, and I'm frustrated, and, and you begin to get burned out. But it was really through those moments in which I start talking to my mom more, my father, and they start putting things in perspective. And I dig deep down in my own roots of El Dia de los Muertos, of the celebration of life. It's not celebrating death is celebrating life, of understanding the transitions that you go through life that really has allowed me to maneuver those difficult and challenges, burned out experiences that we all have. And and some of us try to deny them. And unfortunately, you end up burning out and you end up going into depression. You end up feeling emptiness in your heart. And I would say that me relying in those moments in my own roots, It has allowed me to find more fulfillment. And even in those moments of unhappiness and difficult times, I find the positive things in my interaction with patients. When a patient leaves me and they they leave this world, I like to think that they touch me and they are touching many other patients. That allows me to reach out to their families and say, thank you for allowing me to be part of this journey. And I know through this experience, that experience, because I always remember something personal, I know that I'm going to become a better physician. It is kind of positively affect. So their energy just dissipates. It never disappears. It just keeps moving to other things. And those are the spiritual things of what we do.
0: I love that. I love that. I've actually gone into the habit myself of, and I think it is actually from where I grew up as well, sort of thanking people for letting me be part of their journey. But this whole notion of applying a Western lens to medicine and almost denying that you yourself have feelings and experience emotions, not acknowledging that emotionality. I think you're right. It's, it's almost like you're denying part of your own being in medicine. No question about it. All right, let's get back to this. So I'm sure you've been told many, many times that your story is very inspiring. And of course, here we are, we are recording us in January of 2024, the start of this new year, the time, when people tend to be particularly eager for inspiration. And also it's when we seem to aim higher, we have our resolutions and we are lofty in our goals for the coming year. I am sure that a lot of people who will be listening to this would love to know where you found that drive and motivation and confidence, quite frankly, to aim as high as you did, knowing what you went through now. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. I would have to admit
1: that we all have our own challenges. And I think that the biggest challenge that I have had in my life, despite of what people may see, confidence and and that jovial sort of personality, is that I have a difficult time believing that I have something meaningful to contribute. And I overcompensate by working hard. By getting up in the morning, by going to bed late, by writing every day, you know, I write, I've write, i written a lot of papers. I have a lot of grants. I, I have written a lot of books. And I think that I overshoot because of my lack of confidence. But thank you for, for thinking that I am confident. The only confidence that I do take with pride is the confidence that I know that every time I care for a patient, I know I'm going to give them my best. That's the only way in which I am confident the most. I draw inspiration, number one. Probably my own roots, remembering what it was like when I was a little boy and seeing my little sister succumb in a developing country to dehydration, diarrhea, lack of access to patient care, and knowing how much that affected the life of my father and my mother to the point that, honestly, it was not until about three years ago that my mom and my dad really began to talk in the ways in which this affected their life, So I drew a lot of inspiration of that. And then just fast forward, being a young boy with dreams and aspirations, not really knowing where that was going to come from and seeing my grandmother taking care of people that left an impact in my life. And then coming to the United States, feeling invisible many times, as many immigrants feel many times. uh, And, um, why? Because our skin color is different, our accents are different, our language, our culture. Mm-hmm. But this is a melting pot of opportunities. This country is the most beautiful country in the world. I feel that way. I always felt that way. And I realized that uh, sometimes that feeling of invisibility gives you the strength to keep going forward. And then seeing, of course, fast forward to being in medical school, seeing patients, my own classmates, my own friends, my own relatives succumb to diseases. And that sort of gave me more strength to keep going forward. And nowadays, I see my patients. I see my children. I see my patients and my children. I see my children my patients. I see my parents. I see my patients and my parents and go and my friends. And I realize I have so much to do in so little time that it just gives me the strength and moments of doubt, honestly, because I have a lot of every day. I was in the operating room yesterday. I give you my word, I was taking this tumor out of an eloquent part of the brain. And before I was going into that brain room, I was questioning am I the best, the most qualified? Now, I then use that doubt to fill me with power and ability to concentrate and to give my best to that patient. And I use the same strength for my research. So that's how I sort of keep myself motivated. Engaged in the last. And it's something that we don't talk too much about. But, you know, my birthday just happened in January 2nd.
0: Happy birthday.
1: Thank you. You turned 32. <laughs> I wish, you know, <laughs> 56. And it seems like if it was yesterday when I was 32. That's when I actually started my residency. And I got to tell you, a lot of people, oh, happy birthday and stuff like that. And you, you're so young and spirit and heart and this and that. And I said, people spend their life. Looking for the fountain of youth, when sometimes it's right in front of us. For me, it's being surrounded by people who are brighter and they can be younger, older. But you know what? What it is, is youth in regards to thinking and ideas. And that keeps me energized. That keeps me going every single day, being challenged by those who are above me, below me, to my side, to my right, to my left. But they constantly keep me engaged and the ways of thinking. So yes, I still apply. You can see I have a lot of grants, a lot of ideas. I write a lot. That keeps us young, Don, and that's the
0: beauty of it. That's amazing. And I think for our listeners, one topic that does come up quite a bit is this whole idea of fighting the self-doubt, fighting this imposter syndrome. That, that seems to be something that those of us who are born of immigrant backgrounds, which really is everybody in the United States, if you think about it, is such a common experience and fighting through that can be so difficult. And so this beacon that you provide of how not only do you have an awareness of it, but you embrace it and work through it and just challenge yourself to do more. I think that in itself is also a huge inspiration that people can take away from this. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. And thank you for mentioning that I gave my first talk on imposter syndrome in uh, March of 2020 uh, to Harvard Medical School. The students asked me to talk to them. I was walking around it, you know, and this is what happened. It's like, as I look back, I was devastated so many times with the death of my patient secondary to cancer. And I remember being a resident and one of my consultants, telling me that it was challenging. And I, I, I always thought, you know, as I get older and as I get more experience, I think it's going to get easier. And I always thought my pain and my suffering is nothing compared to the pain and suffering that patients battling cancer, families with their lowest battling cancer compares to. But what I tend to underestimate and I realized about three years ago is that um, those little scars, I call them tiny baby scars, They accumulate. And they begin to have an effect on you, who you are, on the burnout that you mentioned. So about three years ago, I said, you know what? I need to shirt of a psychiatrist. And this came out actually around the time, you know, I remember the Netflix show came out, the Surgeon Scott. And I remember that he won an Emmy, won a BAFTA, and everybody was so congratulatory. And I had no joy. I was like, yeah, whatever. I was not satisfied. I wanted to, what was going to be the next challenge? You know, what's going to be the next, the next, the next? And I realized when I talked to psychiatry that I was basically burnout, that I wasn't finding the joy that I needed. So I started seeing a therapist. And I always tell people, it is important to recognize those moments in which things, if they're not giving you joy, something is not right. So now I find joy in everything. And I also find the time to talk to people when I have moments of doubt, when I have moments of not really enjoying the things that we're doing. So I always encourage people, find that joy. And if you're not having it, then something is not right because there's joy in everything. Even the moments in which we have sadness from our patients, there is joy in remembering that smile that your patients give you, you know, that handshake, that hug that their loved ones give you. There's joy that you can find in difficult and challenging times.
0: I totally agree. And just for our listeners, the Surgeon's Cut profiled Dr. Q as one of four pioneers in their fields of surgery and shared their stories about both their lives and their careers as surgeons. And as Dr. Q mentioned, it is highly honored with both Emmy as well as a BAFTA. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Well, them they did it. I actually was just having lunch
1: with Lucy in, in London. She's the director with Diane uh, Vanderpool. And, and I was thanking her. I mean, it was a beautiful way in which they told the story. Because anybody can tell the story, but put it on video and, and, and film in such a way that it inspires It was also the patients that were there, so many patients that were featured. They were really the true unsung heroes. And
0: we're blessed to walk with them in that journey. I think the other thing Dr. Q this brings up is I'm noticing how you speak of your patients with such respect. You have not once used war mentality when speaking of them as having lost to cancer. Sometimes I think part of that burnout, part of the, the scars that we are left with is because of the language that we apply ourselves to the cancer experience. When we tell ourselves that, oh, I lost her to cancer, you're at fault. It's like you're, you're signing this blame to yourself without even realizing it because all of a sudden you were in a war and she was a casualty and you couldn't save her. I, you know, I just think it's really worth mentioning that the way we look at our jobs and the way we look at a cancer experience can influence how we feel about the work we do. I love it. I never thought about it that way. It was
1: subconscious, probably, because I always thought about my role is to be with them in a journey and it's a life journey and it's a moment to enjoy. And yes, at the end of the day, we may depart this world physically, but spiritually And energy-wise, we continue to be together. I was talking to one of my patients the other day, and I took care of her son when he was 13 years old. And Amador, I can tell you his name, and Veronica, because she wrote a book, she's been in the media. And and it was amazing, you know, the moment that he left us and the energy that he continued to have and the effects that he continues. to, He's with us. So, and I feel physically, with Amador and with Veronica, I think that uh, we continue to be part of this journey. It just never dissipates just energy that continues to move and move us as well. So I think about it as a journey that is never ending and there's opportunity to continue to learn and enjoy life. Thanks to those interactions that we have.
0: Thank you for that and I totally agree. So looking backwards then, again, seeing where you are now and where you started, you crossed the border not knowing any English with very few resources, it is clear to, I think, everyone hearing your story that the kinds of challenges you face to be where you are, to get into Berkeley and then to Harvard men and then to train at Hopkins, it was probably filled with challenges. And I would probably say barriers. And looking at it now, not only have you succeeded, but yourself, you've also been successfully funded for the research, for your passions, for the questions you believe are really important. And in today's age, with a a National Institutes of Health budget that is flat, with pay lines that are just so hard to reach, even for the most savvy young investigator, you know, the struggles are very real. So what advice can you give not only to those folks who don't have the luxury of being born into a third and fourth generation American family, regardless of their background. So, you know, people whose language might be something other than English, but also to all of those folks who really are struggling to find their feet as independent investigators. Do you have advice for them? I do. This is what I think. I look back when
1: I was in medical school, you know, I was there from 94 to 99. At Harvard, and I remember already talking to Ken Mayner and Chris Ogilby and Dell Ames, neuroscience, neurosurgeons, and they tell me how difficult it was to get grants from the NIH. So it's it's a cycle, right? And then I remember being at UCSF as a resident, similar discussions. It's not easy to get funded. I think that we go through cycles, and we're going through a cycle right now, where, the, as you said, the funding is flat, and maybe in a year or two it will be different. It is our role, of course, as leaders, as scientists, as clinicians, as people like you through the work that you're doing. And you're already contributing to people learning that what we do is important, that we do more than science, that we do more than surgery. We give hope and healing at the moment when we need it most. And we need to have more people like you and I doing these things. So I think that you're already doing your job. My advice for the young investigators is, number one, use those moments when things are tight to be more creative to think outside the box, because if you welcome that challenge, if you don't just say, oh my gosh, I'm so frustrated. If you say, okay, I'm frustrated, but what am I going to do? about? how am I going to enjoy these moments of challenging times? Do I need to be creative? Who do I need to talk to to come up with a new way of looking at the disease that I have studied that maybe no one else has looked at? And you'll find that even if you don't find the answers, even if you still don't get your grants funded, It'll make you a better physician, better surgeon, a better scientist, and it'll allow you to enjoy the few wins that you may or may not have and be able to see success even in the middle of failure when you submit grants and they don't get funded. So, for instance, in my own example, I was telling the uh, last week I was meeting with one of my younger faculty and he says, oh my gosh, he says to me, how do you get NIH grants? I said, well, honestly, I apply." For a lot. And I went to my NIH e-commons and I said, okay, you think I have several NIH grants? Now, let me show you the ones that I have not gotten. The times that I have failed are 20 to 1. So I have succeeded in one, but I also have failed 20 times. And what I take from that is that every time I fail, I don't take it personal. I said, all right, there are my peers who are asking me to be more thoughtful, to design better experiments, to test better hypotheses to create a better team. So it's allowing me to be a better leader, a better physician, a more fiscally responsible scientist and clinician for my own patients. So I would say that that's my advice for the young investor. Don't give up. The world needs you. We need your mind. I need you. I need you to find new cures. We need you. Our families need you. And you have a brilliant mind. Just don't give up. Sometimes we spend too much energy being frustrated and giving up. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to be frustrated. But it's also okay to bounce back and say, I can do something
0: about this. The whole idea just don't give up, right? Sort of, you know, the road to success is paved with a lot of landmines that you're gonna hit. <laughs> That's right. You know, and I think it's so important that young people, young I don't wanna say young, because we we are not old either, Dr. <laughs> Q, but younger physicians oftentimes are just so devastated when that one grant is not funded. That it does, it does take a lot to say, it wasn't the time for this one, but put in your back pocket and let's think about how to make it better and let's move forward. And remember, you're not treating the mouse in a lab. You're trying to treat the person that's coming to see you for help.
1: I love what you just, I would say that's probably the number one problem that we have with a lot of young scientists and young clinician scientists. Is that they are so used to, they were the top of their class in high school, top of their class in undergraduate, top of the class in medical school, and suddenly they work in a lab, they did a PhD, they got a paper published, a huge paper, something. Then they go into their first careers, and very rare. The percentages of those who get their first grant are smaller. They're, they're not zero, but they're very small, and then they suddenly fail, and dealing with that failure is difficult. My advice is think about our patients. They're battling disease. They fail every time, you know, and we fail in a lot of things that we do even clinically, even though we may get a satisfaction because we cure this disease or that disease. Momentarily, at the end of the day, we continue to fail in a lot of things that we do. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind and not be frustrated and get back and do it again. And I would say that that's what I have seen in my college. Now as a dean of research, I advise young investigators to meet your grant. Oh, you didn't get a a score. You didn't get a score. You can find, let's find out what they say. Oh, look, they say the X, Y, and Z. Maybe you don't agree with that. That's okay if you don't agree. At the end of the day, that's their perception and perception is reality. Let's help them understand what you try to say here, what you try to do here, what hypothesis you were testing, what sort of experiment you need to do. And I think that that is my role now as a coach. At the same time as I'm playing the game, I'm also getting my grants funded and I'm learning from their science. And keeping ourselves engaged as mentors and as role models is very, very important.
0: Yeah, the idea is important, but so is the writing and sort of like responding to whatever people feel are shortcomings because it can be addressed. So I think that's a really, really great point. And hopefully those of us who are still in the game and trying to hard to do it will take your sage wisdom saying, look, I've cheated this many times, but I've failed. <laughs> far more often. (laughs) So as you look back, and I'm gonna ask you to put your Dean of Research hat on here, we tend to think of research as being funded by peer review, by federal funding or societal grants, but philanthropy plays a huge part, especially for people who are both starting in their careers, but also for established physician scientists such as yourself. Looking back, what would you say is the role that philanthropy on your
1: own career? I think it's a beautiful question. This is my
0: advice, especially
1: for those who, physician scientists who said, Oh my gosh, I cannot compete with the scientist who had a PhD in genetics and knows how to cross animals how to test this hypothesis, a hypothesis. In the meantime, I want you to know that the scientist is telling herself or himself, I cannot compete with the physician who has access to patients. The most amazing opportunity. So yes, you may not be able to know every single detail about a mechanism or a a cascade or something in all the experiments, but many of us have the ability to understand the limitations, to understand the holes that are needed to be solved to be able to provide better care in cancer, for instance, to our patients. And also we have amazing interactions and relationships with patients. So I would say that for me, for instance, through your foundation, I got some of my original grants. You know, remember I had a K award, which paid very little and gave me very little money to run a laboratory. But it was important that I got that NIH K08 because it was also a symbol that my peers felt that what I was doing was worthwhile funding through these mechanisms. But it was foundation money, it was patients' resources. Small donations anywhere between a hundred dollars to five thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, and suddenly you accumulate to two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year. That's the equivalent of an arrow one. And if you take good care of patients, and if you are able to understand the cues, every now and then a patient will look at you, and it says after Q, "Tell me about your work because either they read about it in a paper or." You and the conversations, you know, I have looked at this, or my colleagues look at this, they ask you. And then sometimes it's an opportunity for you to express to them the passion that you have for either a mechanism. But you have to learn how to talk to patients in a way that is not, uh, I'm going to tell you about the sodium chloride potassium channel and the sodium hydrogen exchanger. No, I'm going to tell them how do I use fat to fight brain cancer, you know, and things like that. So you have to learn how to communicate in a way that is intelligent and deep, but it also reflects and allows you to connect with them. And suddenly they said, oh my gosh, I want to be part of that. Uh, at the end of December, I'm going to send the donation. I'm going to, I don't know if it's a $1,000 or 5000 is fifty. So I think that these are very important. And of course, pitching your ideas to foundations, you know, pitching your ideas, beginning to put those grants. And I think that that's where grandmanship comes along. And also making sure that every time you write a grant, the next one is a little bit better. You know what I mean? That's my advice to people. And that's the role that philanthropic money is. I would say, if you look at the federal funding that I have, I probably have two to one of philanthropic monies to my federal funding. And that allows us to have a portfolio that allows us to explore new avenues, new grants, new ideas, new patents. And nowadays, Also, I have started several companies based on the intellectual property, based on the grants that we have had. And that allows us to create new jobs and new avenues for new people to come in and do the things that I probably will leave the seeds planted. But I may not get to see the tree, you know, that amazing tree growing. But I know that
0: deep in my heart, I am satisfied with just putting the little seed on the ground. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I'm going to actually pick up on something you just said, because sometimes on the flip side of those people who want to support research, their people sit home and it's like, what difference will my $100 donation make versus someone who can donate $1.5 million and get something done? Put into context for us how you view these seemingly small gifts and what they can do to help advance cancer research. This is my
1: philosophy for me. A $25, a $5, a $1 donation is as important as a, uh, a $1.5 million. Why do I say that? This is the following. If you look back at the history of probably the largest philanthropic person in the United States is Michael Bloomberg. It turns out if you look at the history of Johns Hopkins, the first donation was just a few dollars. This is after he was parking cars for the Hopkins Club and then became a now a billionaire. And he's donated the largest amount of money to a single institution in the history of the United States. And that is amazing. So every dollar that a patient or every small or large donation, sometimes it can, number one, be a test what they may want to do and see how you respond as the recipient. Number two, sometimes $25 for a family that makes minimum wage is a lot more than a $1.5 million donation that a billionaire may make to your program. And I am no one to underestimate the sacrifices they are making. So I appreciate it. And I thank them for it. And they have also the fact that they are doing that, that also for me as a scientist, as a clinician, means that they believe what I am doing. And it is your own way of finding reaffirmation that in the middle of failure, there is a tremendous amount of success that you're experiencing in your relationship. That means that they have hope. And what you're doing, that means that you're healing their soul and hope and healing are go once again to what I said at the beginning, it goes beyond finding the cures. It sometimes the ability to say thank you for believing that we can change the world together and you're healing their
0: soul. I think that is such an important lesson that I hope everyone heard that sometimes truly saying thank you, no matter how big or small someone is giving you, whether it be uh, you know, a box of candy or you know, some designer label bag or whatever, thank you can mean so much to the person who's providing that. And it goes the same for funding in terms of research. So I think that's brilliant. Final question as we come up on time. As physicians, I know when I speak publicly about cancer, I try to be very cautious not to use a specific four-letter word, cure because it's so loaded and so powerful. And still this big question sometimes I get asked, even on social media is, why haven't we cured cancer? And you end up backpedaling and explaining how cancer isn't just one disease. that it's many, many diseases. And it's as true in what I do, which is in ovarian cancer as it is in brain cancers and brain tumors. There's a whole vast variety, but here it is. I know that you have not shied away from stating your goal is to cure brain cancer. So my last question to you, Dr. Q, what gives you the confidence to believe that that is
1: possible? This is what I think. My definition of cure is that to find a way to fight a disease. Can we find cures? I think that we can. I like to think that I am not doing this alone, that I am surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in the world. And for me, the fact that I believe that we can cure cancer, it also allows me to give an opportunity to my patients to feel part of something much bigger, to know that every time I go into the operating room and I collect their tissue for our laboratory where we do experiments, create avatars, they're part of history. So I'm already healing their soul. I may not have a cure for them. And I may not be the one finding the cure tomorrow, but by planting those seeds, by allowing them to have hope and healing, by allowing my students, my colleagues see that I can believe that we can find a cure, I make that challenge less abstract, less unsurmountable. And because the moment that you believe that you cannot do it, you already lost that fight. We have to believe that we can do it. like I said, it may not be me, but the fact that I promote this idea that we can cure something is very, very important to me so that way we can find ways of healing the soul of our patients and their families. So that way their quality of life, that way their journey in this world is good, as good as we can make it. And that's my role as a coach, as a surgeon, as a scientist, as a mentor, and
0: sometimes as a tormentor. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's what is so. It just struck me just now as you were speaking that I don't know if you realize this, but you, what you are doing is you're turning cancer not to a war, but you're turning it into a mission. You're not talking about battles, you're talking about a challenge. You're talking about join me in a cure. My mission is secure rather than we're going to fight this cancer. That's right that is a wonderful way. And I, you know, the other thing that's, I think what you say so beautiful, and you've said it throughout this chat was how intertwined hope and healing are in the way you view medicine. And I think that speaks so broadly beyond just what we do in oncology. And I'm hoping that people take away one of the many lessons that you shared today, but I think that is a really beautiful one. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Q. Well, thank you for having me and thanks everybody
1: for listening. And I look forward to many, many more of your podcasts, many more accomplishments. And hopefully one day we'll conquer this disease, as you said, and we'll continue to make sure that through this work, we give our patients more hope and we heal their souls. So thank you for allowing me to be part of this.
0: I am just hoping that in 2024, I have the privilege of sharing a room with you so I can meet you in person.
1: (laughs) I look forward to
0: it. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured, and every survivor is healthy. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.